0: So we've got a couple more weeks in our study of Genesis chapter 1, a slow walk through the creation of the world, and I've enjoyed getting your feedback during this series, uh, and uh, I'm glad that it's been helpful and insightful, maybe even a little challenging. In fact, I want to let you know that on Sunday, December 17th, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to be having a question and feedback service. So during that morning's message, I'm gonna be interacting with some of your feedback from the series. I know that it's raised a lot of questions, prompted a lot of thinking. We wanna hear what those questions are. So uh, in your program and up here on the screen, there is a QR code that will take you to a website and you can give us your name and send in a comment or question. If it's a good question that maybe other people have, uh, we might try to include it. And just a reminder uh, to be nice with your comments and questions. Uh, the guy who reads them, he's actually a pretty sensitive guy, and uh, we've, like, told him that he needs to not take things so personally, but, you know, he just never works. So we'll get to that in a couple weeks, uh, but this morning, as we continue our series and talk about the next passage, we have something very important to talk about, food, food. Uh, In our slow walk through the six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1, we've slowed down even more on day 6. Now, I've told you that the structure of creation week, it's remarkably simple. So on days 1 through 3, God builds the house. Uh, He builds the sky, the sea, the land, and on days 4 through 6, God fills the house, the angels, the sea creatures, the animals. But the culmination of creation is the formation of people. God created this planet for us. So whether you think creation took six days, or whether you think creation took 13.7 billion years, we were the goal. We are the culmination of creation, put here to do what the Creator has given us to do. Reproduce, radiate throughout the land, regulate the earth as our home, rule it as the shepherds. In order to really do what God's given us to do, though, we're going to need some things. And this is actually what transpires On the last part of day six, we're going to need energy, we're going to need fuel, we're going to need food. So God's last official creative act is to give us what we need to fulfill his blessing on earth. Let me go ahead and read to you our passage for the morning. It comes from Genesis chapter 1 verses 29 through 31. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds of the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. As is our habit, let's pray first. Father in heaven, you are a generous God, you are a giver. You give us children, you give us people to lead those children, you give us other people to lead those children, you give us a planet, you give us a church, you give us food. Uh, Help us hear what you have to say to us this morning through your word, open our minds, open our hearts, and help us listen with obedient ears, ready to do anything that is you've given us to do. pray these things in your name, Amen. amen. Now on the face of it, this actually doesn't seem like that significant of an event, the giving of plants and fruit to humans and animals to eat. I mean, nothing is being created here. God's just being clear. He's telling male and female, if you get hungry, eat the fruit. Don't eat the dirt. Don't eat the rocks. Don't eat each other. Eat the fruit. And the seeds and the vegetables, and that's why it's there. And this is true for the animals too. I mean, the plants and the trees are there, not just for people, but for the animals, for Fido, for Wilbur, for Mickey, for Clifford, for Toto, for Piglet. Eat all that as well. So, very simple passage, but it is nonetheless one that people have liked to debate. So, apparently, for example, God's original intention for us, people and animals alike, was to be herbivores, plant eaters. Uh, eat the plants, not the animals. Some people have actually wondered how you reconcile this with the historical record which show teeth and jaws that are much better suited to tearing and eating flesh. I mean, Jurassic Park wouldn't be as interesting if all T-Rex wanted was a salad. So how do you fit this together? But I don't wanna talk about reconciling scripture and natural history here. Remember, we're talking about the story of creation on its own terms. And one of the things that we need to understand when reading this chapter and even this passage is how it compares to other creation myths. You see, there were other creation stories. Stories from Egypt and Babylon and Sumeria that were floating around at the time. Every ancient civilization had its origin story. And the ancient Israelites would have known these stories. And as you read the account of creation in Genesis, you can tell that the author is actually interacting with these stories and even correcting them. Uh, In those other stories, for example, the universe emerges out of a great conflict amongst the gods, a war in the heavens, which somehow produces the earth. In Genesis, there is no conflict There's no battle between deities. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is the only God, and he orders things to exist just by the power of his mouth. And here's another difference. In other creation stories, humans are formed as servants of the gods to bring food to the gods so they have something to eat. The gods need the earth as their kitchen, and humans are the kitchen slaves. But in Genesis, we read something very different, right? God doesn't need food to live. He certainly doesn't need servants to bring it to him. No, Yahweh is completely self-sustaining. He has no needs. He creates life out of a loving generosity to share himself with other beings. He doesn't create people so that they can bring him food. Just the opposite. He blesses humanity with everything they need to live and thrive. He gives us the food. In fact, not only does Yahweh give his people food, he gives them lots of food. What does he say here? He says, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. Everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant. Every plant, every tree, for every creature. The abundance of God's generosity is being emphasized here by the generous provision of God. Every living being has access to every living plant. So if you don't like bananas, go try the orange tree. If you don't like corn, try the squash. Try everything. The world is your smorgasbord. Perhaps more than any other day, this passage emphasizes the character of our creator as a provider. He created us with material needs, but also ordained the means by which he intended to meet them. Now, why would he do this? Because in contrast to other gods, it's just who he is. He likes creating people, and he likes giving them What they need, you can't stop them from doing it. He's like, my parents on Christmas. My my parents are always so generous. They're very generous people in general, but especially on Christmas, they had a bunch of kids. Now they have a bunch of grandkids. They worked hard their whole life to be able to be generous to us, especially on Christmas. My siblings and I are always trying to tell them, don't be so dang generous. I mean, stop with the generosity. But it's like trying to tell God to stop blessing humanity. Why? It's just who I am. Now open your dang presents. So the passage is important because we meet God not just as our creator, but as our provider and an orderly one. We see God establish a sort of nutritional order in which we have everything we need to do God's work and and all we need to do is literally reach out and take it. Now if the story ended here, we'd all be so happy with our salads and our smoothies and our nuts, and our berries. But of course, you know, the story doesn't end here. Genesis 1 casts a vision for life on God's good earth and a vision that is never truly realized. Maybe you know, Genesis 2 and 3 describe what happens on this good earth. Humanity is given a test by God, a test to determine if they're the sort of people that can really rule God's earth and not, ironically, the test involves fruit. Day six sets the scene for Genesis chapter two. Maybe you know that in the Garden of Eden, God actually nuances his instruction about all the trees having fruit that is good to eat. There is unfortunately one tree that they are not allowed to eat from. For mysterious reasons, it is forbidden. They can eat from every other plant. They can eat from the banana plant. They can eat from the corn plant. They can eat from the pudding plant. They can eat from the taco plant. But not from the plant of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't want to spoil too much, but you know that the first humans fail that test. And the consequences are grave. What happens as a result of humanity's greedy act? Well, the nutritional order is upset. For starters, the land is cursed. Instead of being given food by the hand of God, men must work for it by the sweat of their brow. Humanity is cast in the wilderness where we experience drought and famine and hunger. Also, animals die. As a result of sin, animals become sacrifices that we owe God because of our crimes. We also start eating animals. And the peaceful relationship God had in mind among his creatures is no more. On top of that, our appetites never recover. Having tasted the fruit of sin, we crave more. Not the healthy food that God gives us, but the unhealthy food that poisons our bodies, our spirits, and our minds. This is the world we live in, a world in which the nutritional balance God created for us to know has been tragically upset. We all know this. We've all seen hungry people. Maybe some of us are hungry people. According to World Vision, for example, 30 million children around the world right now are suffering from malnutrition. 1 million of those 30 million will likely die because they didn't get enough healthy food. 22% of children around the world suffer from stunting, not growing enough due to malnutrition. Even in America, people go hungry. According to Feeding America, 45 million Americans don't have access to enough healthy food. One in 15 senior citizens, one in five children and 23% of black Americans. On the flip side, 1.9 billion people around the world are obese, including two out of five Americans. So billions of people don't have enough while billions of people have too much. The nutritional order of God's good earth has been compromised with deadly consequences. I heard this story on the news recently about a refugee camp in Ethiopia. So due to drought and water, Ethiopia has millions of refugees living in camps. The UN and other governments have been supplying them with food. Reports were trickling out, though, that the food wasn't getting where it was supposed to go. Investigations found that the Ethiopian government, the government, was stealing and stockpiling the food to keep their military and government officials well-fed while hungry Ethiopian citizens were dying of starvation in their own refugee camps. This is not the idea. When God created the earth, he created it with an abundance of food that nobody had to stockpile and steal. Everybody, even the animals, had everything they could need. The plan was that everybody would have enough. That was the plan. Somewhere along the way, though, due to sin and its consequences, that balance was broken, and now we live in a world where people die from not having enough, and other people die from having too much. This was not God's dream. So what did he do about it? Well, this is actually the story of the Bible. God created us to enjoy everything we need on earth. We failed a key test. Now we suffer hunger and gluttony. Did God give up? No, God doesn't give up on his creation. He set about recreating it. And that's what the story of the Bible is all about. As the great provider, he is determined To create an earth where everyone has what they need. Here's what God did. Here's what God is doing in response to our violation of the nutritional order. First, God pardons. The first step towards recreating the world into what it was always meant to be is to pardon its citizens. Just as God provides food, God provides grace. Even Adam and Eve found forgiveness after their hungry act. I think this is important because so many of our sins, our favorite sins, involve our appetites. We hunger for things that aren't good for us, and in a land of plenty and with little self-control, we just gorge on them. Maybe you don't have a healthy relationship with food. Maybe you eat too much of it and the wrong kinds. But maybe your food isn't food. Maybe you crave other things. Maybe you crave sleep. Maybe you crave money maybe you crave comfort maybe you crave alcohol maybe you crave sex maybe you crave social media sports or news maybe like me you crave attention and admiration we all have our foods we all have our cravings that are unhealthy we are fallen beings like this part of following Jesus is learning how to eat right to be healthy consumers. It's why our Celebrate Recovery ministry here at Rooftop includes a place for people who are addicted to food. We have much to learn there, but here's the thing. It all starts with grace. It all starts by being forgiven. As Jesus promises us, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven, including those we commit with our stomachs. God pardons. Secondly, God provides Just because we upset the nutritional order doesn't mean that God isn't interested in providing for us anymore. Just because my kids eat terribly doesn't mean I'm going to stop providing food for them. Of course, I might provide differently, but I'm not going to stop. It's like the Israelites in the wilderness. So maybe you know that when the Israelites left Egypt, they very quickly wanted to turn back, right? They began complaining against their leader, Moses. They said, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt, there we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out of this desert to starve this entirely assembly, entire assembly to death. They were hungry and they wanted to go back. They preferred slavery with food to freedom with hunger. Even in their complaining, though, God provided for them, right? What did he do? He promised them manna in the wilderness, a mysterious, bready-like substance that would appear every morning. He would even provide twice as much on Friday, so they didn't have to go out and collect on the Sabbath. God didn't give them much, but he gave them enough. Despite our sin, God keeps providing for us. He never stops providing. Did you know that there's actually enough food in the world to feed the entire population of the earth currently many times over. There's currently enough food for everyone to be full and then have seconds and thirds and fourths and dessert. The problem is us. The problem is distribution and waste and sin. It's not that God doesn't provide us with enough. The problem is that we don't share well with what God has provided this is why the food pantry is such an important ministry here at Rooftop. This is why you guys did such a good job filling the van last week. This is why, this is why making sure that everybody has enough this holiday season should be as important as us getting our decorations up. God pardons. God provides. Thirdly, God points. In the Bible, uh, food is generally a symbol of God's bounty, But also in the Bible, food becomes a symbol of a deeper need and one that Jesus understands. So when the devil tries to tempt a very hungry Jesus in the wilderness, Jesus says, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He also tells his disciples, my food, here's what my food is. Your food is hamburgers. My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. And in the Gospel of John, after Jesus provides bread and fish to a famished crowd, he is trailed by a certain group of people who want more. Jesus tells them, you're looking for me because you ate the loaves and you had your fill. I get it. But do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. They argue about this a little bit, and then Jesus lays it out out for them. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. God created us material beings, and we need food that He can provide, but we are also spiritual beings, and if we want to live forever, we need something more than food. We don't just need bread, we need Jesus. This is what our Catholic friends tell us tell us makes the, the Lord's Supper so meaningful. It's not just bread and wine that we are consuming, but the body and the blood of Jesus, which is what our souls really crave. This is one of the reasons why I try to fast on Thursdays. It sounds miserable to go without food every week for 24 hours. I mean, people die if they don't eat enough food. But after years of fasting on Thursdays, I'm not dead yet. In fact, every time I I do My mind and my spirit win an important little victory over my stomach. And I'm reminded that I just don't need what I think I need. Sure, I need food, but what I really need is God's presence in my life. Food only points to that. God pardons, God provides, God points, and lastly, God prepares God knows we're hungry, God knows we're starving, God knows that this world isn't what it's supposed to be, God knows that the nutritional order has been upset, so he's busy preparing the next one, one which we can't screw up, and it will have all the delicacies and the fruits that we crave. The psalmist writes in Psalm 23, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. And the prophet Isaiah looks forward to the heavenly feast on the Mount of Jerusalem. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. There's a reason that when the prophets and the poets and the Lord himself describe the new heavens and the new earth, they include all the food. The original creation had plenty of food for everybody to eat, and the new one will too. The hungry and the hoarding will both have enough. This is what Jesus is busy preparing. He's like my mother on Thanksgiving. I don't know if your moms are like this, but my mother spends weeks preparing for Thanksgiving, picking up supplies, prepping meals, assembling menus. When we arrive the day of, she's been cooking for days, and it is always delicious and almost spiritual. I mean, part of what it means to be a human being is to sit around with family, enjoying God's bounty. This is what heaven's going to be like, and Jesus is busy preparing it. Uh, let me close by telling you about a, an old foreign language film that I really like. It's called Babette's Feast. Anybody ever heard of it? Yes, Kelly. Yeah. If this counts, nobody in the first service had so <laughs> second service is at least a little bit more cultured. <laughs> so it's based on a little short story and the story is about a woman named Babette who arrives to a quiet old Danish seaside town to work as a maid. Now, the town is very austere, very Protestant. Uh, The townsfolk are very good Christian people. They serve the poor. They worship very devotedly, but they are lifeless. They refuse to enjoy anything. Behind their dark robes and stern faces, they are sad. They are bitter at God and each other. Babette realizes this. One day, Babette wins 10,000 francs in the lottery, With the money, she decides to make the townsfolk a feast unlike any they had ever had. You see, Babette used to be a chef in Paris, so she knows how to cook. She prepares for them a seven course meal of the finest French cuisine. Now, these curmudgeonly old parishioners, they don't understand what she's doing. They do not eat like this, let alone enjoy eating. They don't want to encourage her, but they also don't want to be rude. So they agree amongst themselves to not compliment the food or look like they're enjoying it. (laughs) The only problem is that Babette has invited a special guest, a general from the Danish army. He joins them for dinner and he is dumbstruck by the meal. He keeps commenting how good the turtle soup is and the buckwheat pancakes and the quail and puff pastry and the endive salad, but nobody reciprocates. To the general's admiration for the food, one table mate morosely says, I believe it might snow tomorrow. Slowly, though, the meal and the service and the wine begin to chip away. These staid, God-fearing Protestants begin enjoying themselves. One of them licks their bowl clean. Another one asks for seconds... In between courses, an elderly couple holds hands. Meanwhile, Babette just keeps bringing course after course after course. By the end of dessert and coffee, the townsfolk are like little children crying and weeping in gratitude and love. They literally leave the house singing and holding hands. One of the guests stays behind, though, and asks Babette what she plans to do with the rest of her lottery winnings. Go back to Paris, start her own restaurant. She says she cannot do any of that. Why not, asks the guest, because Babette says she spent it all on their meal. The story is a parable of grace. Food is grace. We don't deserve it, but we depend on it and God gives it. God gives us everything we need to enjoy his good earth and we are transformed by it. God's gracious provision changes our hearts, our minds and relationships and attitudes. We might start smiling. We might lick our bowl clean. We might hold each other's hands. This is what should happen when we enjoy God's food. This is what happens, should happen when we take communion. Communion should change us as we experience the grace of God. We're actually going to take communion this morning. I know normally we do it on the third week of the month, and it's not the third week of the month, but we're non-denominational. We can do whatever we want. (laughs) The bishop will never know. (laughs) And when you start talking, when you start talking about God providing everything we need in the fruit of the earth, you got to take communion. I mean, what is the Lord's Supper? It's God's provision for us. The fruit of the vine and the fruit of the land remind us of a greater hunger we all have for forgiveness and love and community. And just as God created the earth so that we would have everything we need to live and thrive, God came down to earth and offered us his body and the bread and the wine so that we could live forever in a place where we will never want. We'll take communion in a second, but one final thought. In the book of Revelation, we get a picture of what eternal life will look like in the heavenly city. And as we've talked about during this series, the book of Revelation bears a lot of resemblances to the book of Genesis. The story kind of ends even more perfectly than it begins. And that's true here too. In Revelation 22, John writes that there is a river flowing through the new Jerusalem. On each side of the river... Stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. There are no months in heaven where there is no fruit. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. No longer will there be any hunger. No longer will there be any gluttony. No longer will there be any famine. We upset the nutritional order. We suffer because of it. But our great provider, he spent all he had to prepare for us a meal so that we can enjoy the bounty of God's good earth. Communion is a little taste of the banquet we have waiting. Here's how we take communion. Rooftop, we've got four stations down here with the bread and the cup. When you're ready, enter the center aisle, come on down, take a bit of bread, dip it in the cup, eat it. You can return to your seats via the side aisle. We've got some self-serve cups up here and in the balcony for those of you who need those. Of course, if you're having mobility challenges, wait till the lines die down, raise your hand, we'll come serve you where you're at. As you're doing that, the band has a song they want to share with you. It's actually a rooftop oldie, but a goodie. If you remember it, you can sing along or you can just sit back and enjoy. Afterwards, I'll come back up and pray.